0: Welcome to Smart Talk, I'm Scott Lamar. An unnamed storm dumped up to 26 inches of rain during a four day period in Louisiana earlier this month. 13 people have died and at least 60,000 homes were damaged or destroyed. It's two weeks later and thousands of people are homeless and cleaning up. President Obama visited the region yesterday. Some say it was a visit that came too late. There have been complaints that the flooding wasn't getting the kind of attention that other natural disasters have. On today's program, we get a look at the flooding from a couple of different perspectives. Joining us first is Sue Lincoln, Capital Access reporter at WRKF Public Radio in Baton Rouge. Sue Lincoln, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Scott. Honored to be with you.
0: You know, the last time we talked was uh, just last month after uh, Louis, uh, Baton Rouge police officers were killed. So hopefully we get to uh, discuss something a little more pleasant someday. But uh, let's talk about the flooding. Describe what Baton Rouge and Louisiana look like now.
1: In the areas that were flooded, primarily the floodwaters have gone down. There are some pockets in Acadiana and some pockets in Fer- further south, closer to Lake Maurepas, where the floodwaters still remain. But in general, around the Baton Rouge area and points east that were so severely flooded and took the bulk of the rain, the waters are gone. However, the streets where homes and businesses were flooded, I can only say that as you drive down the street, It's almost like driving between or riding between a perverse levee. Folks have pulled out their couches and their recliners and their carpeting and mounded them at the edge of the street for ultimate pickup. So instead, you have these barricades, if you will, formed of the parts of their life and their furnishings that have now been destroyed by these floodwaters. In addition, we're seeing traffic patterns changed. We're hoping that's temporarily. But instead of folks coming into Baton Rouge, into the city itself, so much to work. Many folks from within Baton Rouge are driving out to the more rural areas, out to the other parishes to take their days to help folks gut out their homes. So we're seeing some peculiar changes in traffic patterns kids would be in school by now Um, they're not they won't be going back to school here until after Labor Day which is about
0: a month late Mm. you know we're getting our view here in Pennsylvania everything we have seen has either been video from the national uh, networks or the cable TV networks or still photographs and newspapers or online what aren't we seeing that you get to see firsthand
1: what you're not seeing is how folks are coming together. I mean, yes, you got to see uh, photographs of the Cajun Navy and the folks that have their boats for fishing purposes that came together to help. But what you're not seeing is the folks that get in their cars every day and drive out to Denham Springs or out to Walker to help their friends, to help even strangers gut their homes. The other thing you're not seeing is the smell because the furnishings that had been flooded that are out at the street, and we've had afternoon rainstorms nearly every day since the major flooding event passed, are now starting to mildew. Folks had to remove their refrigerators and remove the food from those refrigerators. Although that's bagged up, you still have that. So you don't quite get the impact fully unless you stand there, and it's like being at a landfill almost.
0: So when you walk out the front door of the radio station or your home, by the way, were you okay as far as uh, where, where you're living?
1: Absolutely, I am, and so was the radio station. However, my daughter happened to live in one of the areas that flooded, so we have um, been dealing with
0: it with her. So you you were experiencing it firsthand, or your family is, uh, but when you walk out the front door, that odor overtakes you.
1: Well, not where I am now, but where if you get into the areas that actually did experience the flooding, absolutely.
0: So many people, Sue, lost their homes and belongings. In fact, you know, I used that figure that has been quoted uh, of 60,000 homes. I heard on NPR this morning that uh, there, you know, been a re estimate of up to 118,000 homes damaged or uh, destroyed. Where are they staying? And you kind of describe what they're doing to help out, but what are they doing? They're
1: staying. With friends and family, they're staying in hotels, if they can get hotel rooms. You know, there's we open our doors to everybody. I mean, I've had a house full since the flooding began, and I know many, many people who have. Um, the advantage of staying with friends and family is that it doesn't cost you as much, The disadvantage is if you stay with friends and family, FEMA will not reimburse you as much. Mm. So there is that. But with all of this housing stock damaged, whether it's apartments, whether it's single-family homes, um, whether it's small businesses, there isn't a lot available for people to move into. Mm.
0: Uh, you know, we've heard complaints, uh, you know, through the national media here in uh, central Pennsylvania that uh, a number of Louisiana residents are complaining, and a lot of people across the country are complaining, actually, that this storm hasn't gotten as much attention as, say, a Hurricane Katrina or, uh, you know, some other natural disasters across the country. What are the people of Louisiana saying? I mean, is there that, is there that belief that uh, not as much aid, not as much attention is being paid to this?
1: There was at first before... Um Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump came before the president came. There was kind of that belief, especially in the first few days after the rains stopped. Um, I heard from a lot of my friends that, you know, where's the national media? Where's the national media? And I tried to explain to them, just like we can't get out, they can't get in. But there was no brand name to this storm. It wasn't Katrina. It wasn't Rita. It wasn't Gustav. It wasn't Sandy. It didn't have a brand name. Folks didn't watch it build and start to approach where you could trigger some of the response in advance and trigger the consciousness of folks. Right now, those that have been flooded, I think, are more concerned as to how they're going to be able to rebuild than they are worrying as much about what the rest of the nation or the rest of the world thinks.
0: Mm. So, what do the people of Louisiana need, Sue? Uh, clothing, food. I also understand, and again, I heard this on NPR this morning too, that there are a shortage. That there is a shortage of volunteers to help clean up.
1: There is always a shortage because, say, for example, my husband and I were at. We would be unable um, at our age and with my husband's disabilities to actually do the physical labor required to uh, gut our house um, so we would need help it also there is also time of the essence because you want to get this soggy sheet rock, the wet insulation out before mold starts to grow because that becomes another health hazard so. It takes a team to go in and gut a house. And there is a shortage of volunteers. Everybody here that can help is doing so. Uh, As far as food goes, no, we always manage to come up with enough food. We'll feed you all if you come down and help. (laughs) Um, But mostly I think what we need is um, we need you to keep watching and thinking of us praying for us. I know, you know, thoughts and prayers has become kind of trite through all of this. And there are certain organizations that are helping stand up volunteer groups. Um, Habitat for Humanity here has volunteered, um, is sending out crews of volunteers to anyone who needs help getting their home. We have a wonderful organization here called the Baton Rouge Area Foundation, which serves a nine parish area a nine-county area and provides funding for things like this disaster. Right here in Baton Rouge, we have a great group called Together Baton Rouge. It is um, it is a group of churches and their members who have come together all across the spectrum and local community organizations from the teachers' unions to the uh, councils on the elderly that are activists. They send out crews over the weekend to help folks gut their homes that didn't have the help. And they will always accept financial donations because that gets the help in where it's needed if you donate more locally than to uh, no offense, but then to the Red Cross or Salvation Army.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Sue Lincoln is the Capital Access reporter at WRKF Public Radio in Baton Rouge. Sue, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Scott. And good luck. Thanks. Well, we have a local connection to the flooding in uh, Louisiana. Deborah Green Eisen from Carlisle, her daughter Laura, was married in Lafayette, Louisiana, two weeks ago in the midst of the rain and the flooding. Ms. Grignison joins us right now. Thank you for being with us today. Good morning, Scott. You uh, contacted us to say at that time that uh, we're going to get into what you witnessed. But uh, the question I just asked Sue Lincoln from uh, uh, WRKF about uh, not a lot of attention being paid to this natural disaster. And she said that she thinks that's changed a little bit. But that's one of the reasons that you contacted us, correct? That's correct. So let's get into, first of all, I read the newspaper account. There was a newspaper account you sent me about your daughter Laura's wedding. So it turned out to be a happy occasion. A lot of people stepped up. But tell me what you saw. Explain and describe what you saw in Lafayette.
2: Well, we arrived in Lafayette uh, in the wee hours of Thursday. And during Thursday, the weather was still pretty clear. But overnight, late into the night, Thursday night, the rain started. And when you could hear the rain, it sounded a lot like around here when you have a short burst and you're raining maybe half an inch, an inch an hour. But it just didn't stop. So Friday morning, um, there were some problems with getting people in from the airport. Um, The water's just, the rains just still kept coming. We weren't as concerned because we just didn't realize. I think we were a little preoccupied with the wedding plan still. But we realized when we went to the rehearsal on Friday afternoon when people who were coming in from various areas of the country for the wedding were having problems. They were having flights canceled. Um, My son, who had flown into New Orleans, was driving, and 15 miles away from Lafayette, he was... Um, unable to continue and had to follow a state trooper to be able to find his way into town. So Friday night, things just kept raining. Saturday morning, uh, although where we were staying, it was um, the water was high in the yard, but there was not flooding. We started to realize the difficulty and how much rain had come down. Despite what was going on, though, we had two wonderful ladies from... Um, a local beauty salon, who got someone in a four-wheel drive truck to drive them to the house to do the hair and makeup for the girls, <laughs> which was truly
0: incredible. Well, that's, that's good to hear. You know?
2: <laughs> so uh, a, a minor thing, but it was important to them. And while we were um, there getting ready, we kept getting calls. We found out the band, who lived south of the area, was not going to be able to make it. But the bridesmaids and bride, they were unfazed. They just started to put together a Spotify list of songs to use. But as the day went on, we were—we found out the the wedding coordinator who would be at the event, her house was flooded, so she would be unable to come. We weren't sure if we would actually have a venue at that time or if we were having any catering. But... Luckily, um, we did find out the cake came through, even though the people who were baking the cake, the bakers, their electricity was out. They had to work overtime to be able to get the cake ready. We had the cake. We got a call from the venue. The um, owners of the venue actually were going to work to try to open up the venue for us. So we knew we had a venue. We had an officiant. We had a cake and we had a bar at that time. <laughs> well,
0: you, you had the most important thing. The bride and groom were the most important thing. The bride things. and groom were the most important right. thing. Right. So, was there ever uh, the thought that you would have to postpone it? We,
2: yes. When we didn't know if we had the venue um, or the caterers, but again, the caterers came through, which was another wonderful story. They actually had rescued three of the people that worked for the caterers by boat from their homes earlier and they still wanted to work and try to help to get this together. Mm. But when they initiated about 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the wedding was supposed to be at 6, we heard that they were starting to put in curfews. And the wedding, um, the curfew for that area, we weren't sure yet, but other cities and areas, towns in the area, they were having their curfew start at 7 o'clock or 6 o'clock. So about one thirty or 2 in the afternoon, talked to the venue, Talk to everyone. the The uh, bride and groom got in touch with everyone. Some social network, but we moved the wedding up to four o'clock, so we had two hours to actually get and, and have the wedding start at four rather than six.
0: Yeah, I don't know this for sure, but I would go as far as saying, Deborah, that uh, your daughter Laura may have the first uh, wedding in America that was moved up because of a curfew. (laughs) That may be true. You can laugh at that now, but at the time, I'm sure no one was really laughing.
2: No, and when we got to the—everybody was so wonderful with helping us get everything together. Um, Only about 75 of the 125 guests were able to make it. So we had people that were coming from Virginia, family of ours— who had flown into New Orleans, they tried to get there that day, and they had to turn back. They couldn't get through. And um, people that were coming from other areas of the country, too, as well as many of the local people. The parents of the bride, of the groom, we had to delay the actual uh, ceremony because they were having trouble getting out of their neighborhood. They had to wait until someone got a truck to bring them in. One of the cousins of the groom was unable to come because he was being rescued from his house by helicopter. It it was just an amazing
0: story. It it really is, and I'm I'm glad to hear that everything. I mean, it didn't turn out perfectly, but it sounds like you, your family, everyone that helped and participated, did the best with what they could.
2: That's right, and it wouldn't have happened without the people who were there. It if for us, it became. Um, they a memorable experience i'm sure it's one that's a wedding no one will ever forget, but I think um, one of the reasons why I contacted you is that it was difficult for us, but everyone pulled together it was still they still got married, it was still a wonderful wedding, but we were able to leave the area afterwards, and the people that are there we really um, being able to put faces some of the people and actually physically see some of the devastation. I think it wasn't until the next day, on, on Sunday, that we started to realize um, how much devastation there was. Um, Sunday, a lot of people were traveling to get out and to leave that weren't living in the area. And again, flights were being canceled and had to be rescheduled. Um, it appeared to me, from where we were staying, that the water had gone down. So. I wasn't aware that the water was continuing to to rise in different areas until we started to get out ourselves.
0: Mm. Um, Well, Deborah Grinison from Carlisle, your daughter Laura grew up in Carlisle. And uh, if she and her husband can, her now husband can overcome this, they can overcome almost anything uh, during their married life. I'm glad you contacted us and thank you for describing this to us.
2: Okay, thank you.
0: Thank you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. We're going to wrap up our conversation about the flooding in Louisiana with Dan Tobin, who is the communications director for the American Red Cross in the central Pennsylvania region. Mr. Tobin, welcome to the program.
3: Thank you. Uh, Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, for the last few minutes, we've been talking and hearing firsthand accounts of the the, the devastating floods in Louisiana. And even though the floodwaters have diminished, uh, as described by uh, both our guests, uh, there's still a a lot of damage. A lot of people are homeless a lot of need in louisiana uh, during a, a natural disaster like this the american red cross pulls together to try to help people who have been victimized by natural disasters what are we doing here in central pennsylvania
3: uh, well first let me say nas- nationally we have uh, 2300 volunteers currently deployed helping with the relief effort in louisiana here from central pennsylvania we have 23 people who are deployed some of them are on the ground In Louisiana, they're doing everything from working in shelters, staffing shelters, handling safety, logistics. We have mental health professionals down there, health services professionals. There's people helping with feeding. We also have people who are deployed virtually. So they're helping with Louisiana, but they're doing it from here. And those people are are split into two different categories. Some are manning the call center. So they're just handling the influx of calls that are happening every day. So far, we've had close to 50,000 calls since the flooding began. And so we have a group of volunteers that does nothing but handle those calls and try to get them to the right place. And other volunteers, and these ones will start ramping up now in the process a little bit more, are caseworkers. And they're people who will work with those who have been impacted by this more long-term to help them navigate the recovery system and what resources are available and how to access them
0: so Dan what do you need by say you I mean the people of Louisiana for you know our audience if there are, are people who would like to contribute would like to help what can they do
3: sure I think there's two different things one is is obviously you know money's needed and money to, this it's estimated that the relief effort just on the Red Cross end is going to cost about 30 million when it's all done and so anybody who would want to make a donation they can do that off of redcross.org and they can designate it that it goes to Louisiana relief the other thing is to volunteer you you may not get to Louisiana you know for this disaster but you'll help in your local community and then you go to these disasters when they happen A lot of our volunteers today, they started during Katrina or during Sandy. They saw a need and then they they jumped in. So every day they're helping in their local communities throughout central Pennsylvania. I mean, just in our area last year, we helped close to 2000 people following uh, well over 700 disaster calls here, home fires and floods that happen locally that you don't hear about as much. And these are the volunteers that when these bigger disasters happen, They literally drop their entire lives for two and three weeks at a time, and they go to help people. And so uh, volunteers are always needed and encouraged. And once again, from RedCross.org, you can see what's out there for your area. You literally put in your zip code, and it shows you where the needs are.
0: And um, get involved. Dan Tobin is the Communications Director for the American Red Cross Central PA region. Dan, thank you very much for being with us today.
3: Thank you. Have a great day. Mm.
0: Uh, So we want to wrap up our coverage of the Louisiana floods now and a much more pleasant topic here in central Pennsylvania. The Little League World Series is being played this week in Williamsport. Last year at this time, the Redland Little League team was on its way to winning the United States Championship. A new book is out that tells the story of last year's magical run for Redland. I had a chance to talk with the book's author, Scott Slayton. Scott Slayton, welcome to Smart Talk.
4: Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. All right,
0: this time of year, we think back one year to the Redland Little Little League team on its way to a national championship, playing for the World Series championship on Sunday of this week. You've written a book, Boys in the Field, A Championship Journey from Redland to Williamsport. What did you want to do with the book?
4: Well, a year ago, I was sitting on that second hill just trying to find a spot for myself, my wife, and my three kids. And uh, I was caught up in the energy and the spirit of that team as much as the other 45,000 people that were there watching them as well. I had no intentions of writing a book. I had no thoughts of potentially writing a book. Um, But I believed in that team, and I got as completely caught up in it as everybody else. And the very first game that I went up to was the South Carolina game, which I think was one of the best baseball games that I've ever seen live, and then the national championship. And as I was there with my kids and I looked at my daughter, who had Redland painted on one cheek and USA painted on the other, um, I thought, wow, how special it is to be a part of this community and to be a part of this atmosphere. Uh, Came back home, started school, The kids, once they became national champions, were bombarded with opportunities and requests. One of them that stuck was the book idea. And when the coaches approached me and asked me, would you be interested, Uh, I probably didn't even say yes. I probably just hugged them, but jumped (laughs) at the opportunity.
0: Now, you, just what you described, you are a member of the community, but you had no direct connection to the team
4: correct no a lot of the kids have been in my wife's class she teaches fifth grade she taught at fishing creek for many years and now is at red mill and i teach at the high school redland high school coach there for many many years so i've had some of these kids in basketball camp Uh, And have worked with them in many different capacities, but never as baseball. So I was just there as a community member um, and loved absolutely every minute of it. Didn't have necessarily a horse in the race. Like, you know, when you're coaching, there's a different level of intensity that you have. And you can't always take a step back and just enjoy what's going on. I was able to enjoy absolutely every minute of it uh, and would do it all over again. And in this book, we kind of get an opportunity to do just that.
0: Well, winning... Is a big thing, obviously. I mean, th- there aren't very many teams, local teams, that uh, we live with that we can say that uh, they were the USA champions, the American champions, and they played for uh, a world championship. But other than winning on the field, being successful, what was special about this team?
4: Everything they did was genuine. Uh, they did it with an ego-free mentality. All the kids on the team had a role and embraced it. Um, strive to do everything that they possibly could to make the team better. Uh, They didn't allow individual agendas to supersede what it was that the team was trying to accomplish. They did little things, and the book talks about that, how sometimes switching from left and right field depending on what the tendencies of our pitchers were or their batters were, and they did it without even thinking. They accepted their roles as far as positions that they could play that would best benefit the team. Adam Kramer went from leadoff batter to batting ninth to give them a second opportunity. Um, He didn't complain about it. He didn't whine about it. He didn't say, why am I batting ninth? He knew why, and they understood that. And the coaches did the same thing. Tom Pfeiffer went into the dugout instead of coaching at third base. He didn't take a microphone because he wanted to be able to concentrate on just managing the team. He had to be able to focus on pitch counts and batting orders and making sure that he followed all the regulations that go along with Little League. And so he didn't get the spotlight that some of the other coaches from other, some of the other teams did. Uh, he swallowed his ego. All these kids swallowed their ego for the sake of team. That's amazingly rare in sports today. This
0: region, this state, this country, the world focused on the Redland Little, T- Little League team for oh, a two-week period, a three-week period. They did have done so much more afterwards. But this is not something that happened overnight. In fact, there were some challenges in putting together the team uh, there had to be some disappointments leading up to the point where they were in the tournament last year. And you talk about those in the book.
4: Opening chapters, they are eight years old and they lost a the tournament. Um, and their backs were turned to their parents' pictures. Uh, when I first heard the story, at eight years old, you know they still got a trophy. They still were second-place winners. Um, But they were devastated by the fact that they didn't win. It was a tournament that they thought they would. And so I didn't believe it at first until I saw the picture. And then we put the picture in there, and it was at 8 years old, their competitive fires were ignited. And it carried them through into their 9 and 10 years and 10 and 11, and then ultimately the team that they became. What they did for those two weeks looked very, very easy, but it was a ongoing process that had been four years in the making, and Tom, as their manager, oversaw all of it. He had a plan from the very beginning, uh, and again, the kids bought into that, and they cohesively came together and they played on a bunch of different travel teams and they played in a bunch of different leagues. Um, But they were a group of kids that truly believed that they were capable of exactly what it is that they accomplished.
0: What was Tom Piper's plan?
4: His plan was to find the best hitters that he possibly could and put them in positions where they ultimately could become, you know, a power hitting team that also could play solidified defense. Fundamentally, they were very sound. They got a lot of attention for the home runs that they hit and their offensive numbers. Set a record. Absolutely. They were very impressive. And sometimes that over... Compensated for the fact that they were a fundamentally sound team as well. Uh, I believe they only had three errors the entire World Series, and two of those were in the Japan game. Um, but then he had to put together his pitching staff, and Cole Wagner got a lot of attention, uh, and so did Jaden Henline. But Adam Kramer, and it was one of my favorite chapters that I wrote about, um, they knew what they were getting in Adam Kramer. He was a, a pitcher that had a completely different perspective than what Cole's power did. Uh, And then one of the parts that the book really focuses in on was Caden Pfeiffer, their catcher, because he had to become an elite catcher to be able to catch such two different pitchers.
0: Hmm. So that preparation over the years that uh, Tom Pfeiffer prepared them from the point when they were eight years old, nine years old, up until 12 and 13 last year, how did he prepare them? What was his plan?
4: Well, they had an advantage because they weren't trying to become national champions in the Little League World Series. They were trying to become as good as the team that was ahead of them. Cole Wagner was trying to become as good as Luke Wagner, and all of the kids on the team were trying to become as... Good as the 2014 version of the Redland uh, Patriots. And so they had somebody there on a daily basis practicing on the field right next to them that they were aspiring to be as good as. It was a constant daily motivation that they could use. Um, so before they were trying to become state champions and regional champions and national champions, they were just trying to be as good as the kids that they played with every day. That was amazing motivation and inspiration for them through the years.
0: I mean, were they actually thinking, were they motivated, did they realistically think that, uh, hey, we could be state champions, we could be national champions, we could win a Little, Little League World Series? Were they thinking along those lines back when they were 10, 11?
4: Were they thinking it? Probably not. Were they dreaming it? Absolutely. What's the difference? Well, I think for them that they they thought that it was something that was in the distant future. And they hoped, you know, every every kid talked about being able to go up to Williamsport, being able to see what it was um, that created the whole atmosphere around Williamsport and the Little League World Series. Uh, there's a chapter in there when Jaden went there and said, Mom, I think we can play here. I, I think we can compete on, you know, with the teams that are here. These kids aren't that much bigger than us. They're not that much better than us. And he was only 11 years old at the time. Uh, then when the team lost in 2014, that was the year of Monet Davis, you know, they were devastated. You know, And some of Jaden and Chayton and Cole were on that team. They saw the disappointment on the players that were 12, that would be 13, that lost their opportunities. They knew they only had one chance left, and they brought that leadership to this team to make sure that they took full advantage of it.
0: You know, what, something you just said, that, uh, and I know how, Uh, these youngsters think, because I did the same thing when I was their age, how big these other guys are. When they got off the bus, everybody always looked to see how big the other team was. That doesn't necessarily, they're better Mean they're better, sure, but it just means that they could have a few more power play, uh, hitters and power pitchers.
4: The eye test, and I'm sure that yeah. when Redland got off their bus and kids saw how big Cole Wagner right. really was, um, you know, they they certainly moved up in the the respect aspect from other teams. But, you know, the book talks about the the little guys as well. And it's not just about Redland. It's about the Texas team and how they competed against, you know, Redland. And Ryan Farmer, who went in and put on a display of a pitching performance in the national championship game and went pitch for pitch with Cole. You know, I, I, I loved Ryan Farmer, and I, I celebrated him in that chapter as well. And David Mershon, who had a huge at-bat in the South Carolina game when the bases were loaded with two outs and being able to go to a 10-pitch at-bat – Uh, A little 98-pound kid who probably was pinch hit for plenty times over the course of his year and being able to step up and have that kind of at-bat to extend them as well. Um, it's not, Redland is obviously the focus, but it's about the Little League World Series in general and just how special that event really is.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Scott Slayton. He is author of the new book Boys in the Field, a championship journey from Redland to Williamsport. And Scott, we'll talk about how uh, our listeners can get a copy of the book a little bit later in in the program. You mentioned Tom Pfeiffer the coach and as you said he didn't wear a mic like so many coaches at Williamsport do and no criticism of them because that's something you don't get to hear especially when they're communicating with uh, youngsters of uh, uh, 11, 12, 13 years old but Tom Pfeiffer was just he was the head coach. Sure. He was the lead voice but he put together a coaching staff uh, that had a great deal of influence on these kids talk about
4: that well you only got to see three of them you got to see tom you got to see jk you got to see brett but there were two others kyle wagner and aaron walter who also were every bit as part of that coaching staff as well and each one had a role you know, Tom oversaw everything, and he was the the individual that developed this team and made sure that everything that was being done from a baseball strategy was being done to their advantage. Uh, Brett Wagner was the pitching coach, and he worked with Adam, and he worked with Cole, and he worked with Jaden, and he was the technical kind of guy on the mound. And you could see when they went to the mound to have a pitching discussion, Tom didn't go out there just so he could get some airtime and just to be seen on TV. Brett went out there. They trusted each other to be able to fulfill their roles. J.K. was the CEO, we call him in the book, because he was all about culture. Um, And I got to see that culture firsthand when I spent some time in his office at Visiquate and just spend time editing the book and developing the book back in June when I thought it was completed and found out it was only a portion of the book that was completed at that time. Um, And just to see how he works with his employees so that they could flourish, he does the same thing with the players. I want to give you every possible opportunity to be successful. And he was the culture of the team, and the team had an amazing culture in the dugout where they trusted each other. They trusted their coaches. They didn't call them Coach Pfeiffer. They called them Uncle Tom, and they called him Uncle Brett, and that was an amazing amount of trust that they put into their coaches that allowed them to be coached hard and allowed them to get honest feedback throughout the entire process from 8 years old up to 12 and allowed the parents to trust their kids to be coached hard, not always telling them what it was that they wanted to hear but what they needed to hear. Kyle Wagner worked with Caden constantly trying to make him into that elite catcher that would be able to catch kids like Cole Wagner with his speed and Adam with his art. And Aaron Walter was another guy that came in and was constantly throwing batting practice to the kids. I mean, they would fire 75, 76, 77-mile-an-hour fastballs at these kids so that when they saw that, it was something that they had seen every single day. They used the radar gun more on their own coaches than they did on their own players, making sure that their velocity was what it was going to be when they saw Williamsport pitchers.
0: That culture is a, is a real challenge. Uh, There's a fine line there between, you know, the motivation to win, having fun. I mean, you hear that so often from pro athletes, and sometimes I I get to think that, uh, okay, you say, let's just go out there and have fun. Well, it's a different story when you're a 12-year-old youngster and you're playing baseball. You are having fun. You're not being paid. How do you—how do the coaches work that culture that the kids are still having fun, but at the same time they wanted to be successful?
4: I don't know if they would say that their practices were fun. Although Probably the, not. The atmosphere around them was. Um, I think once they got into the games, I think once they started to win, once the stakes started to get high— they insisted that they would continue to have fun, and they did that by challenging each other. They would call each kids up and text them an hour before practice and say, you wear a red shirt, you wear a blue shirt, you wear a white shirt, and the te- they would compete against each other. These kids loved to compete. To them, that was fun. And their batting practices and their batting cages and their pitching performances out in the bullpen, they became the way that they had fun because the kids were, number one, successful, but they were also competing against each other more so than they were competing against other teams. And so when they were able to play in the games, they had an absolute blast. And that was one of the parts of the book that I enjoyed so much in doing the research was sitting down with the kids and sitting down with the families and being able to hear the different aspects that we didn't get to catch on ESPN or that weren't staged for a promo um, there's no doubt that these kids had fun. When I talk to Caden Pfeiffer, and he says when he grows up, he wants to be the catcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers in one sentence, but if that doesn't work out, I'll be a water slide tester in the very next <laughs> sentence. There's no doubt that these kids were able to have a lot of fun.
0: What about pressure? You know, that we often hear about that when we're watching these kids playing in the Little League World Series, that, you know, for the first time in their lives, they have a national TV audience. They have people from around the world watching them, everyone in the community talking about them. What about pressure? Did they feel any pressure? If so, how did they
4: exhibit it? I think they did. And I think there's certain aspects of the games when they started to feel a little bit of that pressure going into the bottom of the sixth inning against South Carolina for the first time ever and losing a game. Um, We go into a lot of detail of what happened in that dugout in between because there were tears. Uh, and Coach Pfeiffer went into a different mode than he had ever before. Tom's a very mellow individual, and he was very stable in that dugout. He wasn't stable before. that they, they went up to bat in the bottom of the sixth inning. He motivated them in a way that he had never tried to do before, and it certainly worked out. I think the biggest pressure that the kids felt, and this might be somewhat overstated, From the 45,000 people that were there, from ESPN and the millions of people that probably watched, they were most nervous about performing in front of the Red Sea and the high school kids that they knew they would see on a daily basis uh, when they got back to school. That was where a lot of them said how cool it was, but that's where they kind of felt that pressure because those were the kids that they kind of looked up to. They were the ones that they had seen at basketball games or football games, and they knew, wow, these are the kids that ultimately we usually go and see. And now they're rooting for us. Uh, so that might have been as much pressure as anything else that they faced. That's
0: interesting. That's you know, and th- kids think that way. That's right. They're not thinking as much about that uh, television camera and all that. But, th- but thinking about the, the, the people that th- they do look up to. You mentioned that the coaches all had a role. What about the role of the players? Each of the players had to have a role.
4: Well, and with their roles, uh, even the four guys on the bench that normally didn't start the games, for them to be able to come in, Cam Walter would come in as the pinch runner or the courtesy runner. He knew my job was to somehow find home plate, whether that be to get from second to third on a pass ball. Uh, Zach Soy was their defensive specialist and earned that by being able to be on the top 10 of ESPN two different occasions while he was up there when he got his opportunity. They didn't sit on the bench and they didn't pout. Jarrett Wiesman, when he got the opportunity to come in for an at-bat, he knew what his job was. And listen, if we need an opportunity to hit a home run in the bottom of the fifth or the bottom of the sixth, you give us the chance to be able to do that. So instead of sulking in the corner of the dugout because I wasn't out there being able to get all of the necessarily glory or playing time of some of my other ones— They basked in the opportunity that they knew they would get. And Tom gave it to them, Um, not just because of the minimum Little League rules that every kid has to have an at-bat or every kid has to go out into the field at some point. Um, They were ready. And when they were ready, they took full advantage of that.
0: We are talking about uh, 12-year-old boys uh, in in Redland's case for the most part. they were away from home. It wasn't just Williamsport. I mean, let's face it, uh, Lewisbury, Red Redland, is fairly close to w- Williamsport, but they played uh, leading up to uh, Williamsport to the Little League World Series in some other locations. But these kids were away from home, separated from their parents. Understand that they had a nightly ritual in Williamsport – Tucking them in one by one by the coaches. Talk about that.
4: Coach J.K., he was, he was the one that, again, was so important as far as the parents spoke that as well. Um, they knew they were going to get the baseball from Tom and from Brett and from Kyle and Aaron. Uh, but they knew the boys were going to be all right because J.K. was there. And so every night he would go in, and their nighttime story started to become the next day's agenda. And so he would read, you know, tomorrow we're waking up at 9 and breakfast will be from 9 to 9.30 and then we'll have meetings with ESPN or then we'll do batting practice at 11. And so that kind of became their ritual every single night. He would go in, he would read the next day his agenda and then one night as he was getting ready to leave, he was walking away and the thought came into his mind of how do I say goodnight to BK, Braden, my son? And as he was starting to walk away, BK called to him and said, I love you, Dad. And that, for J.K., was one of the most special moments that he had, that his son wasn't embarrassed and wasn't ashamed. And then what happened after that was, in true 12-year-old fashion, something that J.K. could have never predicted, but it was one of the neatest parts of the book to be able to hear that story. And so you have to go through and read that book, Chapter uh, 12. It's called Good Night, Boys, and many of the readers that have already read it have said it's one of their favorites.
0: You had to have many stories. I don't know if they're exactly like that, but uh, some funny stories, some things that uh, uh, that many people would find uh, fascinating or enjoy. What are some of your favorite stories?
4: Some of my favorites were in the, the final chapter, and uh, it drove Marcia Blessing, who was the publisher, who did a phenomenal job as far as the cover design and the back cover. This final product would not have been nearly the quality that it was. I originally went into this self-publishing and then hired Marsha and Orison, and they did an amazing job of putting this all together. Um, But one of my favorite chapters was called Extra Innings. They were all the little stories that the kids had told me that didn't quite fit into the chronological storyline that we had had. Um, But again, developed, but just didn't quite fit in there. One of them was when Cole Wagner used to be called Hopper, Um, because he didn't run very smoothly. He looked more like a bunny when he jumped because he would hop around, and they would call him Hopper. Brett Wagner coming home one night after Cole was pitching when he was 10 years old and said, the Cole Wagner pitching experiment is over because he was so bad. And to hear his grandfather talk about the fact that, you know, the first inning that he would pitch, he would blaze through the batting order, nine pitches, strike one, strike two, strike three, all the way down. And then the second inning, a ball would go and hit the backstop and hit the stands and then fly over the backstop. And they said, Cole said, you would always pull me out after the second inning because that was pretty much all that you could stomach. And so being able to hear stories like that and then finding a place for that in extra innings drove Marsha crazy because it took the word count completely up. Um, But those are some of my favorite stories to be able to tell. Not necessarily the ones that went in with the games and the run that they made. Um, but just from a completely different light. But that was the specialness of the team uh, and the kids. Yeah, I, I saw a completely different Cole Wagner when I sat down with him. Um, he's a competitor, and I, I used a phrase in the book that he has the precision of the matador, but the rage of the bull. You know, and to be able to see him, a self-deprecating humor that went along. Uh, to be able to have to almost force Adam Kramer to talk about you know his game and and the magnitude with which he pitched. And all he did is I said Adam. Did you ever think that you could accomplish what you did in that night where you struck out 13 kids to get this team into the national championship? And he just smiled. Uh, And it was one of the most neat moments that I had to be able to see these kids in the capacity that they were when I got to sit down with them and and be able to tell their stories.
0: You know, one of the things that uh, is so special about this team is not only did they almost make it to the pinnacle for Little League World Series. I mean, they did if you uh, look at the, the American championship, the American national championship. But in the years since, all right, now we have a book. There's a film in the works uh, looking at it. This is not a team that uh, the last August was the last we heard about them. They've been very involved in the community since then. I mean, very busy since then. Absolutely. Talk about some of those things.
4: It's what made this so much bigger than just a baseball book. Um, when I sat down with the families from the Four Diamonds, um, the boys took on and became a champion for the four diamonds organization and so i went and i talked to two families that were four diamonds families and they talked about the impact of what these boys taking on their cause and being able to contribute. $31,000 they've raised for the Four Diamonds organization to go to Penn State's Thawne and be able to deliver a check like that. When the stakes became the biggest for the boys, they took on a cause much greater than their own in just winning a national championship. And so when I heard their stories and, and the one family, you know, Ellen, who had passed away right before the World Series started, and the family just completely torn up and and tormented by the loss of their daughter And how their only respite that they had, the only relief that they had were for two hours a night while this team was playing. That they had absolutely nothing to smile about, but they could smile for a little bit while watching these kids play. And to know that these kids were now taking on a cause much greater than their own, their own cause, to raise money for the Four Diamonds organizations. When these kids, whose hashtag was why not us, go and speak to the kid The children that are sick at the Penn State Hershey Hospital, and they say, "No, no, now, why not us? Why not you? you know get healthy again, come out there, play baseball, and be able to do something that 's where this became so much more important than just a book about baseball, uh, and the kids loved the roles that they were able to do and the kids that they were able to inspire you know and that 's one of my goals for this as well. You know, I want kids to be able to want to read this book, not because they were assigned to do it and not because they are going to have a quiz on it at the end. I'm a father who has kids that have played with these kids, have played on teams with these kids in different capacities. I'm a teacher who assigns books all the time. You know, I want this book to inspire other kids, whether it be through baseball or through sports or through art or through performance, to say, you know what, when I do something that I love and I dedicate myself to it, great things could happen. And when I follow my heart, it's hard to go down the wrong path. Um, That's one of my goals for this book, for others that go forth and read it. The name of the book is
0: Boys in the Field, A Championship Journey from Redland to Williamsport. Uh, Scott Slayton, the book is available now, but it will be available to a much wider audience very soon. Talk about uh, how someone out there who is interested in reading the book can get a copy of it.
4: Locally, we had our book launch on Saturday at Brewster's. Uh, It was the absolute perfect atmosphere to be able to do it. 90-minute, we had three hours. We were there from 1 to 4 at the 90-minute mark. Miss Lucy comes over and says, boys, it's ice cream time, and you should have seen the enthusiasm (laughs) in their voice to get to the counters for their ice cream. Uh, So we're selling it at Brewster's in Edders right now. There's a limited supply there. There's a limited supply at Formex in Camp Hill, uh, and they'll be there until September 15th. On September 15th, it goes national. Uh, and it can be bought through Amazon. It's listed on Amazon now. You can order it through pre-release. It uh, becomes available on e-readers on August 29th, and people can go there now if they can't get to Brewsters, they can't get to Formex on their Kindles uh, or their Fires or whatever it might be that they use as far as e-readers. I'm still old-fashioned, and I need the book in front of me. <laughs> um, but anyone will be able to get it on September 15th. They're available at Formex and. Brewsters and Edders until then, locally. uh, We're getting, we blazed through about half of our inventory already. And so we're getting another batch coming in on September first. And to even say that, to to hear it saying it's going national, you know, this this book wasn't written from an office in Manhattan. It wasn't written in a cafe in Los Angeles. It was written in my kitchen table after lesson plans and papers were graded and my kids went to sleep. Or on Saturday morning before anybody woke up um, to hear the reception of the people that have read the book already. Uh, it's amazingly inspiring and humbling to me. And, and again, what those kids gave us last summer was somewhat of a gift. Uh, I'd like to think that this is somewhat of a gift back to them.
0: Scott Slayton, author of Boys in the Field, A Championship Journey from Redland to Williamsport. Thank you very much for being
4: with us today. Thank you, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: You're invited to a Smart Talk road trip tomorrow. Tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, we'll be at the Gettysburg Visitor Center talking about the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service.